looks like we may not meet our responsibility and extend this debt ceiling, interest rates will go up. Exactly the worst thing that we could ask for in times of recovery. Come the war. Come the avarice. Come the war. Come how. Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Alex Bloomberg. And I'm Jacob Goldstein. Today's Friday, July 1st, and that was Senator Richard Durbin you heard at the top. On our show today, we're going to talk with a man who is not afraid to say no, even when literally everyone else is saying yes. That man, Thomas Honig, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. Last year, he was a voting member of the Fed's key policymaking committee, the Federal Open Market Committee. And at every single meeting, when they went around the table and Ben Bernanke and everybody else voted yes, at every single one of those meetings, Honig voted no. Today, He talks about that, and he tells us what he's worried about, why he voted no, and why the Fed may be doing more harm than good. But first, Jacob, as always, the Planet Money Indicator. Today's Planet Money Indicator is 10%. Corn prices fell by about 10% yesterday. It was their steepest one-day fall in 15 years. And, of course, you know, more generally, food prices have been really skyrocketing around the world for the past year or so. They've been a a huge, huge driver of inflation, especially in the developing world where inflation is a really big problem right now. So this big drop in corn prices, it's a pretty big deal for the global economy. It seems so crazy that something like the price of corn, which is it's not like there's magically, you know, it takes, you know, a summer to grow. You, you, you store it, you know, like they pretty much know how much corn's going to be there. They pretty much know how much corn they have. Why would it all of a sudden fall one day, 10 percent? That seems crazy. Well, it turns out everybody didn't know how much there was going to be. And what happened yesterday was the, the U.S. Agriculture Department came out with this report and they basically said, hey, farmers in the U.S. have planted millions more acres of corn <laughs> than everybody expected. It's like, why didn't I have just a plane and like fly around and see how much corn there was, you know? But in any case, basically they said supply is going to be much higher than expected. And, you know, this is really striking because at the same time, we've also been seeing demand for corn come down around the world. And so, you know, despite the fact that the market for corn is totally distorted by all these subsidies, especially in the U.S., we're really seeing basic Econ 101 market forces at work here. The price went up, so that prompted farmers to increase the supply and it prompted consumers to decrease the demand. It's exactly what's supposed to happen. Okay, thanks, Jacob. Let's move on to the show and the Federal Reserve. When people talk about what the Fed is or isn't doing or should or shouldn't be doing, they're basically talking about this sort of one tool that the Fed has, this one dial that it can turn to either sort of put the brakes on the economy or juice the economy. And that dial, it can raise or lower interest rates. And when the Fed thinks the economy needs more juice, needs a little kick, the Fed sets interest rates very low. And in fact, right now and for for quite a while now, the Fed has been keeping short-term interest rates at zero. Which is the Fed equivalent of like pushing the accelerator all the way down (laughs) and not letting it up for a year and a half. Yeah. And there are lots of different words for this. You can call it loose monetary policy. You can call it accommodative policy. You can say they're injecting liquidity into the system. But all these words mean the same thing. They mean that the Fed is keeping interest rates super low to encourage people to borrow and spend more money. And of course, the Fed can also turn the dial the other way. It can take its foot off the accelerator, put its foot on the brake. If the Fed thinks the economy is overheating, if people are borrowing and speculating too much, then the Fed can raise interest rates, go the other direction. And this is called tightening monetary policy. 
We bring this all up because of a very fascinating conversation we had with a very fascinating president of the Kansas City Federal Reserve, Thomas Honig. Last year, at every meeting of the Fed's Open Market Committee, this is the committee that decides whether to, you know, keep, keep the gas pedal on the economy all the way down or to ease up. At every single meeting of this committee, eight people, including Ben Bernanke, voted to keep the gas pedal all the way down to keep policy super loose. And one guy, Thomas Honig, he voted the other way. And we started by asking him, what was it like to say no? It, it was not easy. Uh, I don't want to suggest it was, but... Uh, I do have a great deal. I had a great deal of experience and do have a great deal of experience in terms of the economic events of past, uh, shall we say, cycles. And based on that experience, based on my knowledge of the economy uh, and where I thought rates uh, were uh, relative to where they should be, I voted against the majority and I felt very comfortable doing it. I know the stakes are clear to you, but I just want to talk about them right now. The Fed is incredibly powerful. The, the FOMC is sort of the core policymaking body of the Fed. You're setting interest rates and deciding whether to do quantitative easing or more quantitative easing. And really, you know, on the one hand, if you get it wrong one way, you could fuel some crazy bubble that crashes the economy. I and, mean, but that would never happen. I mean, right. Unimaginable. <laughs> no, on on no. the other hand, if you get it wrong the other way, you make monetary policy too tight, you can choke off the recovery and essentially bring on a another recession or worse. So so there's this sort of tightrope, right? And you can be wrong either way. Was this scary to you when you're, when you're figuring out how to vote? Well, I, scary isn't the word I'd use. It's serious for sure. Um, but remember, uh, first of all, we're not talking about easy versus tight monetary policy. We were talking about uh, zero interest rates versus uh, less accommodated monetary policy. We were talking initially about just taking away the guarantees to the market that rates will stay zero. What it does uh, when you give that kind of assurance into the marketplace is it creates certain behavior, uh, if you will, a callousness towards risk analysis. If you step back uh, to 2003, for example, 2002, 2003, when we had interest rates at one and a quarter percent, and because we were worried about unemployment, the policy was to, as you say, err on the side of being easy because we wanted to make sure unemployment uh, stayed, uh, didn't go any higher or declined. And so we dropped rates to one percent and left in them for a year. We created a credit environment that was uh, very active, if you will, very risk-oriented, and we created uh, in time a housing a bubble, and 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 so what, while you're while you're having these meetings and you're casting your dissenting vote this whole time, you're worried. At the back of your mind is, are we? I'm worried that that we're recreating the mistake that we made in 2003. Talk me through how it goes bad. What happens? Let me give you a specific example in this part of the country, in the Midwest, where we have farmland and agriculture, and it's a big deal for us. Uh, uh, Two years ago, or less than two years ago, land, very fertile land, was trading for, say, $6,000 an acre. That land today is selling for $12,000 an acre. I read Schiller uh, arguing that he thinks there may be a farmland bubble. Well, uh, well, that, that's kind of the point. Uh, and, and, and what you say there is, well, why is that? Well, it's commodity prices are high. Well, that's fine. But interest rates 
that are financing this farmland is around 3%, when historic average is around 7%. And the, and the 3%, the, the reason that you can get a, a, a loan on land for 3% versus the, the historic 7% is because of the actions that the Fed took during, during your tenure. Well, uh, because, yes, because we brought the Fed funds rate, our policy rate, down to zero. Mm-hmm. That affects uh, other interest rates out there, including, for example, the 10-year Treasury. Uh, other loan rates are, if you will, benchmarked off those uh, those uh, Treasury uh, uh, notes and bond rates. So you are artificially increasing the appetite for leverage mm-hmm. uh, and, therefore, the desire to acquire land at these very low interest rates. So when you say leverage, you just mean people are borrowing money borrow, for all borrow. kinds of. They're borrowing money to buy farmland. They're borrowing money to buy buildings. They're borrowing money to, to drill wells. Absolutely. And they say, well, but the land isn't that leverage right now. But it, my point is, it is increasing. When the housing market boom started, it wasn't highly leveraged. It took time. And if you bring the incentives forward of almost zero interest rates or 3% for long-term asset, you are inviting uh, a more speculative uh, attitude. Now, that's an example. There are other assets then that are similar to that. So y- you would like to see interest rates go higher? I'd like to see interest rates off of zero, so the answer is yes. I'm not looking for tight monetary policy. I'm not looking for high interest rates. I'm looking for non-zero so that the markets can begin to read then the credit conditions and allocate resources according to their best use, not according to their speculative advantage. So basically make smart loans instead of all the loans you can. Make smart loans. For example, what's the incentive now for the largest uh, banks? They can borrow basically for a quarter percent and lend it back to the federal government in bonds, notes for 3%. Sounds, you know, sounds, uh, sounds like a good uh, job if you can get it's, it. it. Yeah, it sounds like a heck of a job if you can get it, and most people can't. And it's distorting the marketplace. Now, I understand when the crisis was in place uh, in the fall of 2008, we needed to pump enormous liquidity into the market. But my issue uh, is that we're still following that policy three years later. And the effects of that another three years from now or four years from now could be quite harmful for the middle class of America. So, So you lay this out in a very compelling, rational way. Why is it that everybody voted against you? Well, I think uh, – well, first of all, everyone can look at the same data and come to a different conclusion. And that's number one. Uh, but I think number two, we have different time horizons perhaps. Uh, mine is a long-term time horizon. I've seen that it does take time for policy to have its full effect Others are saying, well, we have unemployment right now of 9.1%. We have to do all we can to bring it down, even if we think it may have a marginally positive effect uh, at best. We still need to do that because uh, unemployment's high. My point is unemployment is high today because we tried to make it lower faster than we should have in 2003. We should learn from that. And today, we, I want to see people back to work but I want them back to work permanently. I don't want them back to work until the next bubble pops and we have unemployment back up to 11 or 12%. Uh, look, at, here's, a, here's the thing you have to remember. During that boom period of the decade of the 2000s, America leveraged itself up tremendously. 
consumers increased their debt levels from 80% of disposable income to 125%. Banks increased their leverage from assets that were to equity that were 15 to 1 to 30 to 1. Then the, the, the crash comes. You still have all this debt. Uh, that takes time to work off. It takes time. And if you try and rush it because of the job losses, which I feel very badly about, uh, but you cause yourself to recreate new bubbles, you're, you're in the long run only going to hurt those very people you're trying to help. That's what we have to keep in mind. And it's just how, how my experience uh, has shaped my views. Uh, it's not, not just the theory, but, if you will, the practice of economics. What is your your experience that that has shaped your views differently than 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 the other members? Well, uh, I've been I'm a I'm a veteran of the Federal Reserve. Uh, I was in the bank supervision area during the crisis of the '80s. Uh, in this region alone, because of the agricultural crisis, the energy crisis, the real estate crisis, I was involved in the closing of 350 commercial banks, community banks, regional banks located across this part of the country, and I saw the devastation it had on uh, farmland values and people that were uh, driven out of their, away from their farms in foreclosure, uh, lost jobs in the energy industry, and then the fallout of that, uh, all because we allowed bubbles to occur in agriculture, in energy, in real estate. We need to learn. I did learn from that experience, and it has shaped my views going forward. And I think I, I care as much as anyone that we bring employment up. I care as much as anyone that we have a good growth economy, but that has to be based upon sound economics. I mean, there I mean, is this uh, basic combination where inflation is super low and unemployment is super high, and so yeah. monetary policy should be very loose, right? I mean, that seems like the simple. That seems like the simple way to look at it. Well, it is a simple way to look at it, and it's also wrong. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, let me give you an example. I mean, so, but 70s, you're saying that everybody else is wrong, that all of the, all no, of no, the leaders all, of the Federal Reserve, I should say, are, are wrong. Not, not all. There are some who agree with me. Um, all of those who were voting last year were wrong. Correct. Uh, well, they were, um, they, were, they were more convinced of their view than mine. Uh, and, and their view yes, is wrong. they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but but let me just say to you, in the 70s, we had a period over that decade where we started out with low inflation, high, higher uh, unemployment than anyone wanted. So we kept interest rates extremely low, negative. Over the course there, we ended up by having high inflation, high unemployment. Right, uh, which people want even less. <laughs> right. Because people, people kept saying, well, well, we can solve this by... Uh, very accommodative monetary policy. We can bring unemployment down. Let's keep, let's keep interest rates very low. That will do the trick. Well, the fundamentals are we need to focus on uh, what, uh, what makes the real economy come back in terms of what, what can we do in our manufacturing sector? What can we do in training people? What can we do to encourage uh, the real sector? How do, we, how do we address our deficit and our debt that is uh, on, uh, on, on businesses and on the public's mind right now, and, and I think causing them to hold back. There are important issues that monetary policy, as much as I wish it could, cannot solve. We are not all-powerful. We cannot solve every problem in this country. If we could, then i keep interest rates at zero forever. <laughs> 
would love to hear your thoughts, questions, comments on today's show or other shows that we've done. Please write to us at planetmoney at npr.org or find us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also visit us on the blog at npr.org slash money. I'm Jacob Goldstein. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. Thanks for listening. This is why, this is why we fight. 